At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Boodoo and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world, from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Hannah, and this is Bio Eats World, our show where we talk about all the ways biology is technology. So Hannah, this episode is about simulating and modeling biology. Let's start by talking about exactly what we mean by that. Well, think about what simulating and modeling means in other industries. You don't have to build a million planes to test a million aeronautical designs. We have mathematical simulations and models that do that for us. So this episode with bioengineering professor Marcus Covert at Stanford, a 16 deal partner Judy Savitskaya and myself is all about where we are in our ability to simulate and build models like that for how biology works. Because these kind of models rely on quantitative data, and because biology is incredibly complex, this has been something of a pipe dream in the past. It's been super hard to translate samples that are, say, smudges on a gel into quantitative data. But now, Professor Covert says, we're finally reaching the Google Maps moment in biology, beginning to be able to simulate and model at the single molecule level to build models of genetic circuits, whole cells, and the dynamic interactions between different cells, even how all that comes together in larger networks like tissue, or, for example, model the effects of a pandemic. The conversation covers Marcus's story of the eureka moment he had that ultimately led to that first whole cell model, where this new ability to simulate and model will take us and why it all matters, and most of all, how these tools are bringing us into a new era of designing functionalities, even perhaps new kinds of biological life. Let's think about human health. The ideal way to create drugs for the human body would be hypothetically to simulate or test, you know, a million different drugs on the human body directly. But there's a huge amount of reasons we can't do that. So our best approximation actually tends to be a mouse, right? It's not anything like the actual human body. In other industries, it that's not at all the case, right? You don't need to build a million planes in order to test a million designs. You have mathematical simulations, you have designs to test them, and then you plan and you build from there. So Marcus, can you give us a kind of broad overview on where we are today in simulations like that in biology? How good are we at simulating biology? It's been said that mice basically raised up humans so that we could cure cancer for them. <laughs> We've been able to do it incredibly in mice, but those things tend to not translate. And it's also interesting that you mention mice as a model, because when we think about models in biology, we are generally not talking about mathematics, which should be 
a little bit illuminating, right? It used to be biology was the subject that you would take or major in if you loved science but didn't want to do any math. And now there's this recognition that we can start to apply modeling approaches and engineering analytical quantitative approaches to biology and medicine in a meaningful way. What do you attribute that quantitative shift to? Where is the data coming from now that we didn't have before? There's a, just the nature of the data. Does the data look like a little smudge on a gel, like in a picture, (laughs) or does it have a numerical quality to it? There's the idea of the level of complexity, like how much can we isolate? How much can we reduce and still have our reduction have a relevance to the whole system, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Early days, most measurements would be, you take some sample, let's say you take a picture of that gel, maybe using some sort of a radiation kind of counter or other light source to try to get some quantification out of that smudge, but it's tough. Anyone who's worked in those spaces will know that it felt very qualitative, right? Mm -hmm. Now we are in a place where just the machinery and the equipment is much more quantitative. I remember early in my experimental days, I had found a very exciting connection between two proteins that involved a 2.1-fold change. And I remember my mentor at the time looking at me and saying, okay, no one's interested in two-point anything, right? (laughs) Like when it says 10-fold or 100-fold change, you let me know, right? You know, we know in other fields that the weak weak forces or the Mm -hmm. weak, these things matter. They matter a lot. But if you don't really have a great framework to even see them or necessarily trust them, that's problematic. So now... People are getting very into more quantitative measurements in single cells. So those kinds of methods now exist. And of course, with sequencing, we also have, you know, just much more rigorous types of measurement. And it's even moving to this point where, you know, these things are becoming automated. There are labs you can program from your home, right? And literally control a robot in a big warehouse, which will run experiments for you. What's amazing about those is unlike a typical lab rat like me, if I'm just working in the lab, I'm not necessarily going to collect all the metadata, like what precise temperature it was throughout the experiment, like every other. But now those things are captured. And going back even to your mouse model, right, there are now even things like mouse cages where everything is kept track of exactly how much food was eaten, like the temperature, all these measurements are now possible, which is very exciting. The question of actually presenting this data and getting people to think that it matters is actually a really big piece of this as well. So like I was laughing so much at your 2.1 fold improvement example, because I had the exact same conversation with mentors in the past. And my question has always been, if I can give you some information that tells you a little bit about every single gene in the genome and how all of these genes interact with some process, and then I publish that in a paper, Would you rather see that or would you rather see gene A is five times bigger than gene B? And the answer is that people would really prefer to see the second because if I ask you, what is that paper about? It is much easier to say that paper is about how gene A is bigger than gene B. Even if we were able to collect these massive amounts of data and create models to describe all of that data, there's no output for that information that is easy for people to digest. 
Interesting. I mean, it just feels like the hubris almost of it, of just being like only big things matter, right? Like it's just such an interesting shift. Like that, why we even start from that place seems strange. In the past, data has been so difficult to collect and it's been so noisy that unless you see a huge effect size, you can basically assume that somebody made a mistake in the experiment and like the result is meaningless. Today, we're actually able to measure these things. So we should start looking at smaller differences and start looking at functional relationships between variables rather than just the data. That's the difference between qualitative and quantitative biology, right? Mm -hmm. At one point, we were looking for a signature that could help us distinguish between different cells in a tumor. And we came back with a signature that was four, involved four genes. Mm -hmm. And I was super excited about this. And we brought it back again to a different person. And that person said, four factors Nobody wants to hear about four factors. Like we, <laughs> we're going to talk about one factor. Even for somebody who understands a system better maybe than any human, right? Somebody who can really wrap their mind around a lot of complexity. It's not going to be bigger than a small handful of things interacting. Mm. The systems part of it is trying to think really on a large scale, how these things fit together. Mm-hmm. What are the emergent properties? What are the things no one would have expected can arise from all of these things interacting together. So I hear about these sort of like major shifts from qualitative to more quantitative and our ability to measure things and the different kind of systems overview that we're able to have now, but I still don't really understand where we are in the ability to simulate it. What can we do with all that information and how are we doing that? I often use maps as an analogy So in class, I often tell my class, I'm now going to show you a historical artifact, a paper (laughs) map, right? I bring out this old paper map of the Bay Area. And it's hilarious. It's funny to me to think this is how I used to navigate. Like when I was 16, I didn't have signs in the freeway saying, don't text and drive. Instead, I would have this fold up map that I had on my knees, like pinning it to the steering wheel, trying to figure out where that you would like pick up at the gas station. Exactly. So really what happened in navigation is the same thing that needs to happen in biology. We went from these paper maps to representing all of our roads and everything in this one unified model, right? Mm -hmm. And just if you just imagine that model takes into account a huge amount of data. Yeah satellite images, you know, the, the roads, roadside well, photographs. Hundreds of years of development and infrastructure. Totally. Once it happened, though, there's no way anyone was ever going to go back. Because whereas maps, like a paper map, is static, right? You can't tell if things change. It's not personalized to you, right? And now just what we have in our phone, like, is basically a huge model of all of the possible ways to navigate in the world, right? And it enables discovery. It also enables rapid advances in technology. Autonomous vehicles depended on a high resolution version of the map. Like the car by itself is not a self-driving car. The car in the context of a massive model of all of these roads and systems is what enables us to have this. Interesting. It's part of a network almost. Yes, that's right. I think we're barely past the paper map stage. We're starting to add more and more mathematics. People are starting to build models of kind of these individual cells, starting to model genetic circuits, how they interact together. They're starting to even start to map this onto larger and larger networks. 
in some cases, they're even starting to look at the interactions between different cells and how that comes together to create tissue. And then even at the medical level, right, they're starting to build these compartment models, which might be able to help us to better see what's going on when we do dialysis or, you know, things like that, that can give us some medical relevance. And of course, we've seen this year of all years, even starting to model the effects of an epidemic pandemic in similar ways that we would doing weather prediction. It really is an early stage, but with, I think, the same transformative potential. Like within five years, we went from everybody using paper maps to essentially nobody yeah. using paper yeah. maps. So your, your map analogy has brought to mind another map from literature, which is Borges's map, which is this idea that the more detail you put into a map, the bigger it gets. And ultimately, you just have a map that is the size of the entire world. And that's not very useful either. So a big question that I know the entire field of biology struggles with is what is the right level of simulation? How deep, how detailed should we go for something to be useful with maps like Google Maps, we have kind of a shared understanding of the level that we need to know. We need to be able to get on our car and like go to places that are on the map. We don't necessarily need to know every mm -hmm. bush that is on the street. So is there an equivalent like shared level that we need as biologists or is it we'll need to have multiple scales of models? It's got to be higher resolution than we would think. Actually, even the map that's used for, uh, at least in the early days of the autonomous vehicles, the map that was used in the Bay Area was much higher resolution than you would think, kind of like centimeters level of resolution. And, and to your bush point, there was height included for these things because the cars had to be able to react like shadow versus person similarly. The problem is in biology is that there are lots of low expressed things, you know, very, very unintuitive things that have big effect, mm -hmm. right? And so I would say neglect those at your peril, so to speak. We err on the side of trying to get as much detail as possible and as much resolution as possible, just assuming that it will probably be similar to other areas. So if we're going to go very detailed into like every single molecule, the equivalent of modeling centimeters and shadows for cars, then it's going to be really hard to do the human body because the human body is a hell of a lot of molecules. So what are the systems that we could use to be able to kind of model everything and go super detailed without boiling the entire ocean? The Human Genome Project didn't start with humans. It started with actually the simplest culturable bacteria an organism called Mycoplasma genitalium, which is just a urinary tract infection, nothing really dangerous, but it was the simplest known culturable organism. And then they built on that technology to then ramp it up 10x, right? And so one of the next big goals was E. coli, which had 10 times as many genes, maybe 50 to 100 times as many molecules. A next target was a yeast, which, which is kind of another 10x. What happened was while they were doing this, they were rapidly scaling up the technology to start this genome revolution where we can sequence ourselves for a relatively low cost and have access to that incredible storehouse. So in the same way that the Human Genome did, Project did that with sequencing, our lab in 2012 reported the first what we called whole cell model that takes all of the genes in that exact same simple cell, mycoplasma genitalium, takes all of those genes into account, their functions, tries to represent and account for every molecule in that cell. 
And now very recently, you know, we've been building that up in E. coli, which is again, a major ramp up in complexity, but also now has all these great industrial applications, right? Is a global pathogen uh, that is, can be more serious. And for me, kind of a pie in the sky would be a tumor, right? Like tumor with all of its varied cell types, just crazy amount of interactions, highly non-intuitive. And we know that those things are the secret. Curing cancer really is going to depend on these system effects that we just don't know what they are. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like building that very first model? What were some of the crazy left turns that you were not expecting? It kind of goes back to the data. So biology, like all the workings of a cell, if you think about it, they can be very different, right? If you think about how genes are expressed, right? How mRNA is made, how protein is made, how that decays. So the data that we generate about all of those things, it looks really different. In some cases, like I can do this dynamic live cell imaging and I've got time resolution, I've got single cell resolution. In other cases, it still is just because that's where the tech is, right? It still is very qualitative. I had kind of guessed that maybe where others had tried to use a one-size-fits-all mathematical approach to modeling a cell, I was going to have to do something more like a quilt, like a lot of very different models that I would bring together. And so I thought, I'm going to need to focus more on integrating than on developing a new method. Stitching between. Yes. Interesting. Exactly. So one day riding home on my bike, I all of a sudden had the remaining insight, which was weirdly that instead of trying to model a group of cells, which benefits from averaging and these other ideas, it might be easier to model one cell growing and dividing one time. It actually turns out to be hugely important. It gives you what I would call molecular closure and temporal closure. What does the beginning have to look like and what does the end have to look like? If that makes sense, right? Yeah. So, like, Since I know that I have to go from here to Los Angeles... That's a big thing to know because now I'm not going to New York and back, right? I have a relatively smaller space of routes that I can take to get there, if that makes sense. So no more quilts, back to maps. Yeah, right, right. back to maps. <laughs> We're just going to jump from analogy to analogy. How many can we fit in? So literally, I ran in the door, stayed up basically all night, frantically sketching out how this was going to work. And that was kind of the beginning, right, of what became this, this cell model. So for me, that was the biggest leap, and it was very non-intuitive. We were just off to the races, kind of thinking about each square of the quilt. And we'd kind of say, okay, it looks like these few would go together. And then we'd start just listening to people. Like, when you talk about this group of genes, does that sound, is the way you're talking about it qualitative, right? Are you kind of talking about this thing has an effect on this, or is it quantitative? to really start thinking about each square as a piece. And then it came time to put the thing together. It's interesting that you get clues even from language like that, right? Yeah, definitely. The part I really loved about that paper was that the quilt nature of the model meant that somebody could come in with a different perspective or a different data set on any piece of this quilt and sort of replace that piece of the quilt. And it would still hook into the rest of the model the same way. And you can sort of test out whether or not your piece of the quilt is, is working the way you think it is. That's great, Judy. And it tempts me to talk about some stuff we've, we haven't published yet. So if you think about going from like this simple bacterium to a tumor, right? You have to do two things. 
right? One is you have to keep being able to model these more and more complicated cells, which is already hard. But a tumor is a mass of many cell types. Almost every cell can be extremely different from the others. And so how do we bring all that together? What we've found is that we can use modularity in a way that's really powerful where the cells themselves are modules that are filled with modules. <laughs> Thanks to really leveraging cloud computing, we've been able to recently build super colonies of E. coli that are hundreds of cells interacting together that are all different. And each one of which is running one of these big models. One of the models. That's and, so cool. Yeah, it's super exciting. And that's because of this modular nature that it's like modular from the very ground up all the way. Exactly. We ended up making the modules inside the cells much more interchangeable. Hmm. And so I really do think that the model is now getting to a point where maybe somebody won't be a whole cell modeling expert, but they might be an expert in this piece. And so they can just pull out that quilt square, which might be too qualitative or misguided because we weren't experts in that part. And they'll be able to put in their own piece and then compare that to this vast amount of data, see how well it interacts with the cell, et cetera. Especially with the fact that a lot of people are staying at home and couldn't make it to the lab. We've had a lot of interest in using that code to try to incorporate their own details. And what gets most fun is when they're bringing something totally new in. A lot of people are recognizing that we're now in this incredible space where we can start designing. Like the same way it used to be, I could talk about discovering things like Google Earth through navigation. It wouldn't really have a great biological analogy because we couldn't do the kinds of massive perturbations or rewrites or additions the way that we actually now can, right? We're in this brave new world of being able to design and even in some cases like writing out entire bacterial genomes, right, that we can put in and make new life, essentially. So these kinds of tools have never been more important, right, to be able to go in and say, okay, I can now add a new module, like a brand new module, one that's never been seen, like in the form of a plasmid that I'm actually going to bring into this cell, right, or in the Cas9 CRISPR intervention, where it really is literally going to add new functionality that maybe has not even existed before. And I think that's where things start to get really, really mind-bending. Yeah, I think this is from the perspective of company building. If you can simulate, you can invent some quilt square that you want to integrate into your cell. And rather than going out and building labs and spending millions of dollars on CapEx, you can simply test your hypotheses before you start in a model like this and see, does it even, does it break the things that we already know to be true about this organism? I've always been like super jealous of my physicist colleagues because the way that they think about things is, Everybody has the right to create some model, some portion of a model, integrate it into existing models, whatever they want. Then they sort of simulate it forward. Or if they're really lucky, they just do some math to figure out what they expect some outcome to be. And then they can just test if that outcome is real or not, if the experimental system exists to do it. That is where this model is actually like really useful, where you can make a prediction beforehand based on entirely on simulations and then actually go out and test it in the real world. But it seems like there's still, for some reason, a lot of resistance to the sort of modeling and simulation future of biology. And so I'm certain that when you published your papers, there was some, there were some people who came out of the woodwork and had a lot of criticism. 
what were the general criticisms? Just this is far too complicated to ever appropriately model something like this. I mean, do people think in principle was just impossible? So that's certainly part of it. How could it be possible? And maybe a more sophisticated criticism would be something like, well, so a typical biological model might take the form of some equations with a few parameters. The E. coli model currently has over 19,000 parameters. I certainly could feel the laughter in the audience when I say that this is what we have. I think it was Johnny von Neumann who said, with four parameters, I can simulate an elephant. And with five, I can make him wiggle his trunk, right? So certainly for physicists, there's this idea, like let's have elegant, small models. My response to that often is, I get that you can make a curve that looks like these kind of rudimentary sketches of an elephant. But if we were really to simulate an elephant, it would be this vast, crazy, you know, monumental achievement. So that I think a much better analogy, and I'm sorry, we just keep going. No, I love it. A much better analogy might be like a motherboard of like a big processor, right? If I were to say to you, oh, I want you to capture everything that my desktop is capable of, but you can only use parameters you'd think I was insane, right? Obviously, like tens of thousands plus parameters are routine in these fields where you have a very complex circuit board with all these inputs and outputs, et cetera. Thinking about cells more in that regime, right, gives you a better idea of what the order of magnitude should be for the number of things you take into account. Interesting. Once I gave this talk and somebody said, well, aren't you just making like a boatload of assumptions and making this model? And I said, well, you know, it seems to me we're both making the same number of assumptions. You're assuming that almost nothing matters. And I'm assuming (laughs) that every single thing matters, right? But we're both making assumptions about every single component. It's just a matter of maybe I'm over-assuming, right? But certainly in that case, you're under-assuming. So you alluded a little bit to this when you started talking about sort of the shift towards design. So I want to think again about the purpose of these models being that we test ideas on them or test the way we think things might work and then presumably gain more knowledge of that and then build on top of it. So what are some of the things that you, having done this, both the sort of early models of the bacteria and the ones that you're working on now, like were there, oh my God, moments where you're like, it might actually look like this. And we didn't think, you know, what are some of the flavors of that knowledge that you might not have gotten any other way? There are a few different ways to think about what a model can do. One is to predict new behaviors. When we started originally proving that these models could be useful, the way that we did it was mostly proving a lot of small things, like how fast it could work as an enzyme or else how rapidly it's degraded. But they're kind of baby steps to the big goal. Cancer is not a one gene problem or Alzheimer's or any of these complex diseases. They're the complex interactions of genetic, environmental, epigenetic factors that all come together in these non-intuitive ways there are roughly 4,500 genes in E. coli, okay? And all of those genes get expressed. And some of them are expressed highly, and some of them are expressed not very much or, or maybe even not at all. What we found was that when we looked at our individual simulations for those low-expressed genes, it wasn't that all the cells were expressing a little bit of them. It was that most of the cells weren't expressing any, and some were expressing a lot. That was more than half of the genes in E. coli that were like that. Wow. And so we started looking, well, what kind of genes are we talking about? 
a huge percentage of the antibiotic resistance genes, for example, which is a really interesting insight because what it tells you is, okay, wait, maybe we've been thinking about how cells respond to antibiotics completely wrong, right? Maybe instead of all of these bacteria vaguely having a little bit of resistance, the way that it works is here we are in this big crowd and one of us all of a sudden has this like event where we make a lot of this resistance protein. And now Mm. let's say I'm resistant to this. And if the antibiotic comes through, it's going to wipe everybody out, but I'll still be there and I'll repopulate, but I will dilute out my resistance and then somebody else will have an event, right? Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's you, right? And so now you're resistant to this thing. So instead of having a population where everybody is prepared for everything, instead it's a population where one individual, let's say, is ready for each possible thing that could happen. Maybe a new nutrient coming in, maybe another toxin coming in. There's one cell that's ready and will respond accordingly and will be able to be prepared. The rest will die out or not be able to respond, but the whole colony can be recapitulated fairly quickly and it will have that same level of heterogeneity where again, everybody is not ready for everything, but ready for one thing such that the collective is able to respond. That's super cool. That begs the question of what's the right, again, like what's the right scale for modeling? Like, is this really single cells or are we really talking about a population? Because the incentives are at the population scale. In a sense, the organism is the collective. I'm most interested in having it spit out something that I've never thought of before. When we put stuff into a cell, we're kind of looking for one thing to happen, right? Like, let's say I put in a fluorescent gene. I'm looking to see that this cell will glow. I'm not looking for everything else that happens. Maybe it gets expressed too highly. Maybe that starts to impact the protein degradation machinery. Maybe the garbage isn't being collected, so to speak. There are all these things that can happen. And it's so much more important when we start talking about ourselves. When we start talking about using a gene therapy, we look and we see, oh yeah, this is doing the thing that I want it to do. But how is that disturbing the force, so to speak? How is that making everything else get out of whack or not? And very often those things do exist. We would never just want to build an airplane completely from scratch and get into it and fly away. As we enter this world, it's going to be more important than ever to have tools, quantitative tools that make sure that it's predictable, safe, you know, where we've looked at all the side effects, where we have an idea of what's going to happen that we can start to map our understanding onto. So the next model is tumor. Do you imagine that in the beautiful future, when we get to whole human models and we're actually using them to design therapeutics, do we have to then integrate information about each individual human into these models? Do you get a personalized model the same way that you get a personalized medicine? Right. So the short answer is 100%. First, you drag yourself across the finish line trying to make something that kind of represents even a human cell and then try to represent more human cells, some tissue. But then the beauty of that is we do know a lot about differences between people, right? Like we have the sequence genome of so many people. Can we start to translate that out to, okay, we know now that this protein works a little differently or is expressed at different levels, right? In this person, what does that mean for their network? What does it mean? For this tumor, is there a treatment we shouldn't use? Is there a treatment we should use? Would a combination work better? I think those are powerful, possible insights that would arise from human-level models that are specific to a person. Even though a massive human model is 
far away. I would also say that smaller models are already beginning to be relevant in helping people to design medicines. There are companies now that are, that are talking about this, like being more quantitative, building models and using those to directly impact human health in an individual, personal way. We've talked a lot about how these models can help with therapeutics, with treating disease, with making sure therapeutics are safe. I guess my last question for you is, what is some purpose that you think these models can be used for that we might not have thought of at all, whether in the field of therapeutics or healthcare or beyond it? So something that I've had on my mind a lot lately is we talked about these cloud labs where you can program from your computer and you can run, you can do a research experiments from home. What if models were basically taking care of our, our kind of more routine discoveries and a lot of that legwork so that humans, like kind of these incredibly bright students that I see coming through, could spend their time really just totally dedicated to creativity, just like crazy out of the box. We just open their possibilities and their minds. I tell my students all the time, don't forget the original neural networks. Our brains are still the best neural nets. And especially when it comes to just out of nowhere insights. And so I would love to see this world where a huge amount of discoveries happening in this like rapid, highly systematic, data-driven way that is enabled by modeling and large-scale understandings and then just leads us to these insights to go from data to knowledge, to go from knowledge to insights and discovery. It almost sounds like making more room for creativity in science, mm -hmm. in a way. Not just changing how we model things, but changing how we do science itself. That's really cool. Exactly right. Thanks so much for joining us on BioEats World. If you'd like to hear more about all the ways biology is technology, please go subscribe to the A16Z Bio newsletter at a16z.com newsletter. And of course, subscribe to BioEats World anywhere you listen to podcasts.